if you don't know me, my name's Terry, uh, Terry Irwin. I'm a deacon here at UBC uh, and um, grateful to, to be walking through the Old Testament with Wes and with you all. Um, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you want to have a Bible with you, want to open that up, we'll be kind of flipping around a little bit. Uh, but before we get into that, we have one final book to give away. Uh, this is the Goldsworthy Trilogy. So really it's a three for one. And I, I would just highly commend all three of these books. Despite how thick this looks, the individual books themselves are actually quite compact and, and uh, really easy to read. He's just a fantastic writer, really straightforward, clear, um, really takes the, especially in the, in the two books, uh, Gospel and Kingdom, Gospel and Wisdom. Those are really going to be the two books that just tie in really well to what we're doing. In Gospel and Kingdom, he's going to just trace through the story of the Old Testament and show how the Old Testament connects to the Gospel and to the New Testament and how the Kingdom of Israel is this sort of prototype and pattern for the Kingdom that God is going to bring and establish in Christ. And Gospel and Wisdom um, going to be really helpful to you, especially next semester as we start diving into the wisdom literature. And he's just going to do a fantastic job in that book of showing us how the wisdom literature in the Old Testament ties into this theme of the kingdom and, and into the gospel. Just absolutely wonderful books. If you don't have these, they're must-haves for anybody and everybody. Who would like them? Yeah. Thank you. All righty. Let me pray with us and pray, and you can guys can pray along with me, and we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that um, we can look to your word. We can learn from your word. We can have our eyes opened, and we're grateful ultimately that as we read a book like this, that we who have come to hope and trust in Christ, who have been given your spirit and have been changed uh, by your spirit, that we can now love you and obey you, and God, that we can, we can join you, and we have been brought into a kingdom in which we, we get to enjoy life with you uh, for eternity. And God, I pray that as we read these words, that, that you would help us to see how these things point forward to Christ, uh, but you would open our eyes and understand, help us to understand just the glorious truths that are contained in this book of Deuteronomy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, Wes helped us walk through the book of Numbers, which I think despite its bad rap is a rather exciting book. And hopefully, I think Wes was able to kind of walk you guys through everything that's going on in that book and, and just the ups and downs that you see in it. Uh, and we considered, you know, this theme there of how God's past promises prevail in spite of Israel's present problems. So it's a book that in a lot of ways is filled with problems. If you'll remember almost from the moment Israel finished building the tabernacle and set out from Canaan, uh, things just went downhill immediately. It, I mean, it's just, it's really quite tragic. It's like they pack up the camp and the very first thing we read about is, and then the people complained. Uh, and so we see this, you know, happening continually through the book of Numbers. The people complain, they question God's provision, they question God's goodness to them. Ultimately, they question his leadership over them by questioning Moses. And so things are, are bad throughout the book. And yet we saw how God's promises are prevailing in spite of that, how God's judgment upholds his promises, and we saw how uh, God's faithfulness to that faithless generation 
really meant ultimately barring them from entering the land, and then God raising up a new generation to take their place. So now as we, as we come to Deuteronomy, we're really kind of at the, at the apex of that story of the faithless generation and now the children that have been raised up. So we're, we're, we're kind of joining Israel on the plains of Moab as they sit in front of the Jordan River across from the Canaanite city of Jericho. And they're, they're finally ready to enter into the land. These people have largely remained faithful to God and obeying Him and, and listening to Him. And now they're, they're about to enter into this land. So they finally made it. This is the sort of the end of the journey, so to speak, that started all the way back in Exodus. Uh, before they can enter, Moses is going to stop and he's going to deliver not a strategy for war or a complex series of, of plans for how they're going to take over the land, but he's going to give three sermons, which, you know, I don't know about you, but maybe is a little bit surprising because if you're imagining, all right, we're going to get ready to go in and do battle and take over this land. So what are we going to do? What do we need? You would think maybe that they were going to sit down and drop all these plans and, and everything, but no, they get three sermons. They're so close, they've been dreaming of this for, long, for so long, and yet they stop on the border to listen to three sermons. Because there's much more at stake here, right, than just a, a place for them to live and a people for them to conquer. In fact, in some ways, the book takes that reality as a, as a foregone conclusion. That's not really the question of the issue here. There's really no question of whether or not they're going to be able to enter the land and they're going to be successful. You know, in fact, that was sort of the thing that got them, their parents, into this problem in the first place. They were the ones who would who have liked to have that strategy to go into the land. And that's not what God's going to give. He's going to give uh, a series of, of sermons that are ultimately going to point them forward to what it looks like not to take over the land, but to have life in the land once the land's already been given to them. And uh, we know that, that that's important because as we've been tracing this story through Genesis, we've been tracing the story of God building His kingdom, we've seen how God has worked to, to use Abraham and to use his seed to create a people for himself and to build a kingdom for himself. You know, we've defined kingdom a number of times, but I think it's always worth repeating so we understand sort of what's happening. We can understand kingdom as this idea of God's people living in God's place in God's presence, under God's rule. And that's a definition that I've largely stolen from Graham Goldsworthy. So I think that's just a really helpful way to understand this idea of kingdom. God's people in God's place, in God's presence, under God's rule. And so what is about to happen as they enter into this land, they're going to become this kingdom, or this kingdom is going to be established. And so that promise, it, it really took its official form in the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15. And we've seen God fulfilling this promise in numerous ways so far. What, what are some of the ways that God has been working to build this kingdom that we've seen so far? Just some of the, what are some of the major things that jump out at you guys? Well, he's given them a yeah. Yeah, he's given them Moses to lead them in this journey. What else? He's built up the people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's raised up a people through Abraham's descendants. He took, you know, what was at first a really large family, and he's turned that into a whole people group uh, of 12 tribes. What's that? A whole 
a whole slew, yeah. Uh, not only that, he, he rescued that people out of Egypt, right? He delivered them from a kingdom that, that was largely, I think, meant to represent the idolatry and wickedness of those nations that emerged after Babel. And he's brought those people to, to the mountain of his presence, right, where he's revealed himself to them. He's provided them with a new identity. They enter in, into covenant with him. He promised to lead them and provide for them and give them this land that he's promised to Abraham and his descendants. And, and he's promised to love them and trust if they trust them and obey his commands. And so he's provided really just a, and then a safe place, right, in the tabernacle for his presence to dwell with them and for him to bless them. And he's even provided all of these sort of outward means that they need in order for that to work, right? We saw how that, that tabernacle and the Levitical system, it ensures that God can, can really remain in their presence and bless them as he takes them into the land. So God's been providing, you know, time and time again for this people as he's been building them and bringing them towards this moment. And yet, despite God's faithfulness and his love towards them, time and time again, we've seen them fail, right? And we just saw that in their parents most clearly. You know, in, in their lives, we saw this, this theme that we've seen over and over again so far in the Old Testament of God's faithfulness, and yet the response to God's faithfulness and his goodness and his provision isn't a return of love and faithfulness to him, but ultimately a, a lack of trust in him and a refusal to obey him. And so they, they, they died outside the land because of that. But in the wake of their failure, Deuteronomy kind of represents the same theme also that we've seen time and, time and again, which is this idea that God is going to preserve a people through which he's going to make a new start and a new covenant. Because that's who this generation represents, right? They're this new people and this new covenant that he's going to be making. And so as we come to Deuteronomy, God is going to once again establish this idea that he's building a kingdom for himself despite their failures. And he's going to do that through this, this idea of covenant and promises made to the people. And in that sense, what we find here in Deuteronomy, again, it's not a battle plan, right? It's a reaffirmation of the covenant and a reaffirmation and an, even an expansion upon that blueprint that he gave them for the kingdom back in, in Exodus. And so that's really where this book gets its, its name from. So Deuteronomy, it's just a compound word. It comes from, from the Greek, Deuter and, and Onomy. If you put them together, it's just second law, literally just second law. And that's the idea here because the book is really just a second giving of the law or the covenant that was originally made there at Sinai. It's a, a second giving and an application to this new generation. And so as before, this covenant is really the way in which God sort of officially uh, makes clear and makes it solemn that he has entered into a formal relationship with these people and that they have entered into a formal relationship. So we talk about marriage as a covenant. You know, there's a formal relationship that the husband and the wife enter into that, that, that has promises and that has uh, you know, things that are made and, and stipulations and all these kinds of things that are, that are attached to it. And, and that's the same idea here. God is entering into this relationship with them just as he had he had said to their parents that he was going to enter into a relationship with them, and they largely rejected that covenant. But God's going to reapply that to this new generation. And that's what's most important in this case. So what they need isn't, isn't a, a battle plan. What they need is to know that they are in covenant with God before they enter into this land. So it's not surprising then that the structure of this book, it's really largely in the form of a covenant. So we've already mentioned that the book is 
composed of these sermons, but if you break these sermons down, then really you have a sort of typical, uh, almost ancient Near Eastern type covenant. There's sections that you can divide it into and see that what's clearly being done here is that this is a covenant that's being made. So the book begins with a historical prologue, which is typical of ancient Near East covenants in chapter one, chapters one through four. And you're going to see Moses' first speech there. He's going to recount God's past faithfulness to them. And then in the second speech, which is going to be the sort of heart of the book, we're going to see Moses lay out sort of the foundational principles of the covenant in chapters 5 through 11. And then he's going to move on in chapters 12 through 26, where we're going to see the specific regulations that's going to be required for them as they live life in the land. And then Moses' third speech, he's going to bring all of this to a close by outlining uh, really the instructions for a ceremony that they're to perform once they enter into the land that's going to act as a kind of formal ratification or, or adoption of this covenant. And then he's going to conclude that speech by giving a series of warnings and exhortations and reminders and blessings and curses that are going to offer us a glimpse into Israel's future as the covenant people of God and God's plan of redemption uh, for them and then through them. And when taking all this together, it's driving at this idea that, right, what Israel most needs, as we said, is not a strategy for war, but a blueprint for how they are to live faithfully in covenant with their God. That's the most significant reality here. If God is on their side, well, then victory is a foregone conclusion. And that's really what's, what's at stake. Is God on their side? Are they in this loving, obedient, and faithful relationship to God? Because if they choose that, if they'll choose life and choose that relationship with God, then they don't have to worry about what's going to happen. God assures them over and over again throughout this book, it is going to go well with you in the land. But the opposite is true. If they don't choose to remain in this loving and obedient fellowship with God, then it is not going to go well in the land. And so that's the main idea, really at the heart of this book, that life in the kingdom is found in loving loyalty and obedience to Yahweh. That life in the kingdom is found in loving loyalty and obedience to Yahweh. So if they're to live as God's people in God's place, in God's presence, then they must be the kind of people who live joyfully and faithfully and obediently under His rule. But Deuteronomy is, I think, going to do more than just teach us you know, what is it required of them to enter into and enjoy this kingdom. It's also going to point them forward and really us forward and hope to see their ultimate need and the ultimate provision that God is making through this people as they, as they seek to enter into His kingdom. So with the rest of our time, I think we're just going to break this covenant down. We're going to walk through each of these sections and we're just going to consider how this book is, is pointing to this idea of, of the kingdom that God is building and how it points us forward in ultimately in hope and anticipation of Christ. So as I said, the, the book begins with this historical prologue. And we've covered a lot of this already uh, because we've talked a little bit about the, the context. And that's really what this historical prologue is doing. In the, as I said, in the ancient Near East, you had treaties and covenants that, that would begin with this historical record. And the purpose of that was to really explain the nature of the relationship between the two parties who were entering into covenant with one another. So in some sense, you know, again, to, to look at marriage, it would be like the, the story that you tell uh, before, your, you know, before your wedding when you're at the reception of how you met and, and how you fell in love with one another. And that's sort of the idea that's behind a historical pro-life like this. It's, it's 
the treaty's way of saying, here's how these two parties came to know one another, and here is the nature of the, the relationship that they have with one another and why they're entering into covenant. Now, it's not quite as sweet and sappy as that in this case, because things are a little bit more complicated. You know, it'd be like if you were going to tell a story and say, well, we went through some rough times. We didn't quite love each other all the time. And that's a bit, the, bit of the picture that we're getting here. Right? So Moses, through these chapters, is reviewing Israel's relationship with Yahweh up to date. And the history here, it's what we saw in the book of Numbers, largely. You know, Moses is going to recount the people's lack of trust in God's power. He's going to recount God's refusal to let the first generation into the land. They're wandering through the desert, and then God's gracious provision, and of course the military victories that they, they had, that the second generation had as they approached the land. And as, as he's recounting all this, right, the theme that's emerging is, yes, they, they've been unfaithful, and yet God has been repeatedly faithful. And he has shown his justice and mercy through his faithfulness. In all these things, God has shown himself to be a God worthy of their love and their obedience. And that's the, the theme that's, that he's driving to as he closes chapter 4, because he's going to reflect on these events, and he's going to kind of turn this back towards this new generation as a way of saying, you know, this is the, God, this is the way that God has been towards you and to your, to your parents. And so now you, as you enter into covenant with God, you are called to be faithful and to love Him in the way that He has loved you and been faithful to you. We read in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did, at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among them all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So in short, Moses has kind of recapped their history and shown them that God's been faithful, and, and he wants this to sort of serve as the basis for them understanding the covenant that he's about to lay before them. And this charge really kind of serves as a as a preface or a summary to that covenant. God's been faithful, now they are to be faithful to Him. A faithful God requires a faithful people, right? And that's really the, the main idea of these first four chapters. And so at, with that sort of groundwork laid, Moses is then going to turn in chapters 5 through 11, and he's going to build on that and, and really lay out a kind of foundational set of principles and, and rules and statutes that really lie at the heart of the covenant. But before we get into that, let me just pause briefly. Any thoughts, any questions, any comments so far? All right, we'll keep going. We'll probably get some questions as we, as we do continue. So as I said, this is really in 5 through 11. You know, we can sort of see this as the, the kind of foundation of the covenant. What's this covenant about? And what are the, the, all the laws and statutes that we're going to see? What are they rooted in? 
And so, in essence, through, this, through these chapters, we're going to see that Moses is really restating and expanding upon those, those stipulations and those covenant uh, principles that we saw back in Exodus, especially Exodus 20. So it's no surprise, right, that he restates the Ten Commandments right off the bat. It's one of the first things that he's going to do in, in chapter 5. He's going to bring back the Ten Commandments and sort of reapply them to this generation. And that's important because most, most of the rest of the laws that we're going to work through as we work through this book, well, they're really just kind of applications to specific situations in the life of Israel of these Ten Commandments. You know, we can think of the Ten Commandments as, in essence, sort of the ten basic principles that ground their entire religious, civic, and legal and moral life as a people. You know, there's a, there's a big picture-ness to these, to these rules that, that then is going to get applied into all these various ways. But and then there's something even deeper, even at the heart of these ten principles. And we see this in chapter 6. There Moses is going to sort of lay... Uh, the core sort of foundational reality at the heart of the covenant that God's making with, with them. And he's going to summarize that, and he's going to show them that what is the covenant all about? What is, what is this a covenant? Is it a covenant of, of duty and fidelity to have the responsibility to obey God, or God's just some petty, terrible uh, God who wants to exact vengeance upon them and take stuff from them, and they better do it or he's going to kill them? No, in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. At the core of this covenant is not duty and responsibility, but love and faithfulness. Moses wants them to see that God's love for them and his faithfulness towards them should prompt obedience in them. And we see this, in, in, especially in chapter 6, in what is commonly called the, the Shema. And you can read along with me in chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, when you bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, these should be constantly on your mind. What are the things that preoccupy our minds? Well, the things that we love, the things that we care about, right? So the idea here is these are things that you should love, right? You should love the Lord your God, and you should be constantly thinking about the commands that I'm giving you today because this is the basis for, for your life in this land. And when God brings you into the land, in verse 10, that he swore to your fathers and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, Houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods or the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall di diligently keep the commands of the Lord and the testimonies of his statutes. And then jump into verse 20. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord God commanded you? In other words, what's the purpose of all these rules? Why are we, why are we doing all these things? 
He says, You shall say to your son, When we were in Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great grievous, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteous for us if we are to be careful and do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So in other words, he's telling them, you know, as you look at these laws and your, and your children ask you, what's the purpose of this? You say, God has shown us love. He has been faithful to us and merciful to us. He has delivered us and he has given us this land that we didn't build, that's not ours, that we don't deserve. And so, of course, we, we should obey him and love him and listen to him. His commands are good. They give life and therefore are good, right? So, so the idea here is not, well, we got to do these things in order to be safe and God's going to not, you know, do this and that. And, you know, just, it's just what we're supposed to do. And, well, if we do these things, then we'll show that we're really good people, right? We're righteous and we deserve to be with God. No, it's supposed to underscore the reality that they don't deserve God's mercy, right? This love and this obedience is supposed to be a response to their thankfulness to God. And Moses is showing them that that's really the core of this covenant. So it'd be easy in some sense to, to look at this covenant and go, oh, this is a covenant of works. And there's certainly a sense in which that's true. But the heart of, of what Moses is showing them is really at the heart of this covenant is God's grace towards you. You don't deserve any of this. And he, and he drives this home right through the rest of, of the, this section by reminding them God didn't choose you because you were unique or special. He chose you simply because that's what he does. That's who he is. He's a God who, who sets his love upon those who don't deserve it. And that's who you are. God has loved you and he has been merciful to you. And it's a sweet picture, right, that he's going to reiterate all throughout this section. God has chosen to love you not because you deserve it, but because that's the kind of God He is. And the proper response Moses is going to make clear to such love and faithfulness to an undeserved people is for them to love God with all of their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their strength, right? That's the heart of the covenant, the heart of the law. And Jesus is going to make that clear. You know, how to, what is the, the summation of the whole law? What is the greatest commandment? Well, it's, it's what we just saw. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. Of course, Moses is going to build on these, these principles, right? And he's going to move into, as we go to chapters 12 through 26, which are really the bulk of this book. These are going to be the, the, the sort of, move, we're moving now from general principles, right, to the specific application and, and the specific regulations that, that detail what it's going to look like for them to live this out in the land. So in other words... It's important to keep in mind as we consider all the various laws here that these are really just a, a working out of what we've just said, right? So those are the principles behind the covenant. And so what does it look like for them to be people who respond to God, who depend upon God and live in light of God's grace and mercy towards them in love? Well, that's, that's what 12 through 26 is all about. It's showing us, like, here's what that looks like in various situations uh, for your life as a people in the land. And there's a lot we could say here. There's, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of regulations. A lot of great things here for us to ponder and, and consider and, and think about how these things reflect God's character. But I want to try to just step back 
and give us a basic sort of big picture summary of what these regulations entail and really how they're functioning in the lives of these people, right? So as we said, these are, these are really the, the working out of those foundational principles that we've just seen, and they're the, the specific application of that, right? This is a detailed blueprint, in essence, for, for the kingdom, for what it looks like for them to live. So we've just read about how God's made it clear to them, you're about to take possession of a land, uh, you're, you're going to have homes that you didn't build. Far, I mean, it's a ready-made kingdom, right? Like any other kingdom on the earth, we, we've, re we've read of this so far, they had to build the houses, build the cities, build the homes, build the farms, come up with the laws, do everything. And God's basically saying, no, you're not doing any of that. You're not building any of this. You're contributing nothing to this equation. Like this is a ready-made kingdom that God is literally just putting in their hands and saying, okay, here's all the stuff. Like you don't even have to build the farms. They're already there. I'm going to just give them to you. Here's homes. Here's Here's great things that you are going to have that you didn't do anything to make. And then now here's a, here's a whole legal code, a whole list of, of rules and regulations and laws that, of, of uh, who you're to be as a people. And, and you're not free to come up with this stuff on your own. This is, this is it. This is who you're to be. And I'm going to give you everything you need to know how to live once you get into this land. That's what these laws represent. And so there's going to be some really like specific applications of that, right? Because that's, that's necessary for a law. We're going to see really specific um, ways that this has worked out. But with that said, I do think we can kind of summarize and categorize these, these various laws into three categories. I think largely the, the categories here represent three sort of different spheres of life that God is providing for. So first we're going to see largely laws concerning the, the right worship of God. And that makes sense because as they're entering into this land, they need to know what does it look like for us to rightly worship this God that, that has rescued us and that has shown grace and mercy to us, this God whom we're to love. So, you know, we see examples of this in, first in the laws of acceptable worship in chapter 12 and then observance of festivals in chapter 16. There's going to be numerous prohibitions throughout these chapters about not being drawn into idolatry and what to do when someone is trying to draw you into idolatry and, and those kinds of things. The point in, in all of this, right, is that God and God alone is to be worshipped in the land. God and God alone is to be the one who determines all of the, the elements and the forms and even the times and circumstances surrounding their worship, right? And this is going to help set the stage for the rest of the laws by reminding them that, that this life that they're to have in the land, it's not first and foremost about their own uh, relationship with one another, but ultimately their relationship with God, right? So that, that's the, you see in this a sort of reflection of that idea that at the heart of the, of the kingdom is this idea that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what these laws reflect. How are they going to do that in their worship of God? But then second, we're going to see lar laws uh, largely concerning what we might call social justice, and I mean that in a, in a way that has nothing to do with the current context of discussions and debates around that term, but, but that's the best term, really, that theologians for actually for years have used to describe the laws that you find here in this category. These are laws that really deal with the, the civic and social responsibilities that the Israelites have towards one another, because they're not just a, uh, individuals living in this land, right? They're a a community of people that have been called out and bound together through this covenant, not just with God, but to one another. 
So there's going to be numerous examples uh, in this section. And surprisingly, this really makes up the bulk of the laws that, that we're going to find in chapters 12 through 26. Uh, this is really the heart of what God's going to instruct them on, on, and that is how they are to relate to one another as God's people. So examples of this are going to be numerous, but they'll include laws about you know, prop, private property and the boundary markers and who gets to determine who, who gets what property and, and what is the nature of the relationship but, that we have towards one another's property. Like, I can have, I can graze in your field, but I can't just take stuff from you and, and hoard it, right? If I'm in there, you have a responsibility to provide for me if I need provision while I'm coming through your land, but I can't just take advantage of you. And take. So there's these laws concerning private property. You're going to have laws about justice and, and how to have measurements um, just measurements so that you, you make sure that the economy has a sort of justiceness to it, that people aren't just ripping each other off. There's going to be laws about what just leaders look like, just priests, uh, cities of refuge for people to flee to in times of, of trouble or in questions of guilt. There's going to be numerous laws on, on how they're to treat women, which is tremendously important in this context. Women were treated not great in the ancient Near East and and a lot of these laws are, are tremendously, for lack of a better word, progressive in their culture. I mean, God is basically telling them women are to be treated with dignity and honor. And there's, there's tons of laws that really drive this point home throughout this section that God's going to say they are, they are made in my image and you're to treat them with dignity and with honor. And so there's numerous laws that deal with that. There's numerous laws for how they're to treat foreigners among them how they're to treat the poor and needy among them, as well as laws concerning murder, divorce, sexual immorality, etc. The point is, in all these things, right, they're to be a people who display God's character through the righteous community and the way that they love one another and treat one another with compassion and fairness in the way that they care for one another. Right? This is a, a picture that is really driven home in this section, and it's a picture that is largely taken up in the prophets uh, as a way of accusing the people of their failure to abide by the covenant. One of the most common refrains in the covenant, along with their, their idolatry, is you are a people who have turned aside from the covenant because look at all of the ways that you treat each other with injustice. Look at how you, you fail to care for one another. Look at the ways that you take advantage of one another and the ways that you fail to uphold uh, and take care of those who are poor and needy among you. You know, there's a lot here, and, and the idea, again, it's that God has not just brought them together to be a people who worship Him, but they are bound together in one another, towards one another. There's a responsibility that they have for one another, to care for one another. And as I said, this is really the bulk of the, of the laws here. You know, they reflect this call that we are to, in essence, if the heart of the kingdom, right, we said is this idea that, that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, what is second only to that? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So it's no surprise then that similarly Jesus is going to pick that up and say these are the two, the two hearts in, so, in some sense of the law that we have here. To love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally we're going to see laws really concerning their personal conduct and their holiness in the land. So, you know, examples of this are going to include laws concerning, you know, clean and unclean foods, uh, uncleanliness in the camp, uh, leprosy, laws concerning vows and, and that they make to God. And then, you know, I think within this category, we can also see those, those laws about mixed fabrics and the like. 
the idea here is that, you know, we are seeing that it's, it's similar to what we saw in Leviticus, right? There to be a people who are, are set apart and made holy unto the Lord. So there's a uniqueness about the way they're to live. There's a uniqueness about, about how they're to conduct themselves personally, that when people look at them, they're to say, well, they're a bit strange, right? So, so that they know something is unique about this people. They, they have a devotion to their God that, that seems to call them to want to, to do things in a way that uh, show that they, they want to be set apart unto the, unto the Lord and be separated from the practices of the nations around them. And I think that's what you're going to see largely in these laws. So, you know, that helps us understand in some sense as we get into questions about, you know, what is the purpose of some of these kinds of really strange laws like the mixed fabric law. But, you know, when taken together, really, as I said, these, these three sort of categories, right, of, of worship and then, and then civil or social responsibilities and then personal holiness, they cover really the entirety of what it means for them to be a people living in justice and holiness and faithful to God, faithfulness to God in the land. Right, so this, this is going to cover like the full sphere of their life in the land. It, as I said, is, Israel is literally being handed a kingdom. You know, no other nation on earth could say that God created their society and gave it to them from scratch. Everything that they're to do and to be in this land is to reflect their dependence on God and their, their life in Him. Every aspect of their, li- of their life is to reflect His character and His gracious provision. And, and this is really driven home throughout these chapters and really throughout the book of Deuteronomy by this continual uh, tight connection that's drawn between obedience and then life, or, or, or on the flip side, disobedience and cursing and death. Over and over again throughout Deuteronomy, we're told that if they do these things, they will receive life in the land, abundance, prosperity, blessing. Obey all of these rules. And this is just a, a handful of things I grabbed from Deuteronomy. So that you may live and not die. So that it may go well with you in the land. That you may live long in the land that the Lord is giving you that you shall possess. That you may multiply greatly as the Lord has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then again, because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Your grain and your wine and your oil will abound, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and the land that He swore to your fathers. And I could go on. There's promises of abundant rain in due season if they obey. So the picture here is ultimately one, right, of material blessing as a nation. So if they remain faithful to God and, and loyal to Him and they obey Him, then the picture they're given is God is going to bless you in the land. It's going to go well with you. You're going to have everything that you need to live your lives. God is going to protect you. God is going to provide for you. God is going to care for you. And you are going to reflect God's character. And that's the, the picture here. But, but similarly, if they don't do that, then they're going to find themselves in a position of, of death or poverty, ruin, and eventually exile. And this is all driven home very clearly as we come to the next section in chapters 27 through 28. But again, before we get to that, any comments, any questions on really the heart of the law or, or these, these stipulations that we've considered? Any questions about some laws that you are trying to understand in here?
Yeah, well, I do think there's a, I, I don't mean to separate the conversation completely. I do think there's a, a great deal that this has to teach us about how to have that conversation. Um, but I, I, I do also want to be careful and recognize that um, a lot of people bring a lot of assumptions to that conversation and a lot of words that, that they're going to input meaning into. And so when I use the term social justice, I want to be careful to say, I don't mean to input terms and, and meaning into that that everybody would input into that. And so I think in, a, in a, just a general sense, it's fair to say these are, these are laws about how they are to treat each other socially in a just way. Well, the well, God's that, laws of social justice and not man's laws of social justice. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And all laws of social justice aren't very, aren't very justly. <laughs> well, I guess it depends. But yeah. Yeah, well, it just depends. Well, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, um, you know, there's a there's a sense in which there are conversations that we can have about, you know, how do we reflect the character of God in the way we treat other people and how do we reflect the character of God in our concern for other people. And I think most specifically, I think where this becomes really important for us is how how do we reflect the character of God with the way we treat one another as, as fellow members of, of Christ's body. So this is really one of the chief ways that I would say that this idea gets applied in the New Testament. Um, it is going to get applied to this idea of, hey, in the same way that, that they were bound to one another in covenant, we are bound to one another as, as Christians in covenant with one another. So over and over again, you're going to see this theme in the New Testament of, we have an obligation to care for one another, to care for the poor and needy among us, to make sure that, that the least of these among us as Christians are cared for. And so we, we have, you know, Jesus is going to talk about this repeatedly. Like, you can't just say when someone comes to you, you know, a, a, a child of mine comes to you and, and is in need, like, well, I hope you, hope you find some food and water and you do well. And, you know, and, and John's going to bring this idea up in, in his epistle, and he's going to say, this is a mark of, of the way, you know, as Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Well, John's going to take that idea and he's going to say, if you see your brother or sister in need and you turn your heart against them, how can you say that the truth is in you? Right? And so it's the same idea that we're seeing in here, that, that we have a responsibility to love God, but we also have a responsibility as Christians to love one another and to treat each other with, with compassion and care and, and justice and fairness. Uh, any other questions? Before we move on about this section. A lot of good stuff here. All right. So as I said, we, we're getting into the, the, the consequences of the outworking of this, right? So the issue is uh, for Israel, if they're to do this, if, they, if they're to obey these commands, then the consequence of the result is going to be blessing, you know, and, and this really takes shape principally and throughout this book in terms of material blessing. God is not uh, ashamed to say that to them. If they obey, if they show love to God and they remain faithful to him, then he's going to give them rain. He's going to give them farms. He's going to give them homes. He's going to give them good things, right? Um, this could be a conversation that we would have, you know, if you had questions about this, but I think there's a difference here in some sense between the kind of modern prosperity kind of 
gospel, and there's lots of ways in which this is different. But recognize that the chief reason this is different is the situation and the nature of this, this situation, right? God is giving them a, a nation. He's making them into a physical, literal nation, okay? They are literally being handed a kingdom uh, and a place and homes and farms. We're talking about all that. So God is literally sort of setting out the provision that they need to, to survive in this land. And he's saying to them, if you will live in love and dependence on me, I will make sure that you'll be able to live as this kingdom, that you'll be able to have everything you need physically to survive and to continue on in the land. And so that's it's not quite the same thing as, as saying, you know, God will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise if you follow Jesus. And we can, we can hash that out more. Feel free to talk to me later afterwards, and I'll, I'll be happy to explain why I think that's different. But needless to say, all of this is really brought to, to its striking head in, in chapters 29 through 34, uh, where we're, oh, oh, I just skipped a section, sorry, 27 through 28, where Moses is going to provide these instructions for how they're to ratify or to sort of formally accept the covenant in the land, right? To ratify a covenant is sort of, okay, we are formally agreeing. It's like signing the covenant. And that's what this ceremony represents. And it's a kind of odd, a little bit uh, of, a, of a ceremony, but it's, it has some striking parallels, I think, to back to Genesis 24. But as you read through this, the picture that we seem to get is that Moses tells them it's once, they're, once they enter into the land, they're to build an altar on Mount Ebal and to use uncut stones and offer sacrifices to the Lord there on that altar. And they're to write the entirety of the instructions of the law that have been given to them in this book on those stones. And then they're to separate themselves off, the 12 tribes, in half. Six of the tribes are to stand on Mount Ebal and then the other six are to stand on Mount Gerizim across from Ebal. And, and geographically speaking, these two mountains are really at the center of Israel. So you have the, they're equidistant from the farthest, most north and south point. So they're literally sort of at the center and they're to stand across from these two mountains. And, and the Levites are then to pass between them and pronounce curses that are listed there. And, and the idea here, I think, is that as, as, as Moses is going to explain, the tribes that stand on Mount Ebal are going to do so for the curse or to represent the curses that are to befall them if they fail to obey. And then the tribes on Gerizim are sort of for the blessings or to represent the blessings they're to receive for obedience. So it's this interesting ceremony and it kind of has even also some um, evoke some similar imagery to the, to the covenant ceremony that we saw all the way back in Genesis 15 where we saw the dividing uh, in half of the animal and God passing between them. There's curses there's, in every verse and then we're at page. Yes, there's a lot of curses. Um, and the idea here is, again, it's a covenant sort of official ceremony showing uh, that, that God is sort of passing as represented through the Levites through their midst and, is, and they're either to receive blessing or cursing depending on their obedience yeah, to this covenant. Uh, and then as we continue on, uh, we're going to see that um, really, that's, that's what this, this ceremony, it, it's going to show them that, that either to live in God's obedience is to receive blessing or to live against that is to be cursed. They're faithful to, if they're not faithful to Yahweh, uh, then the covenant is going to include, like you said, some terrible curses, 70 verses, in fact, of curses. And the greatest of those uh, we find in 28, 36 through 7. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone 
and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Now what verse? 28, 36 through 37. So the, the idea here, right, it's that of exile. So the ultimate reversal of what's happening here is what? Well, it's exile from the land. For them to, to finally and fully reject God and disobey God will be to sort of undo everything that God's giving them here today. And they will eventually be taken out of the land and removed from the goodness and the blessing of God's presence. God will leave them and they will be cast out of the land. And this is, this is exactly what we're going to see, right? And this is the, the ultimate curse and undoing of this covenant. If they are to listen to Moses, though, and if we're in their place, I imagine that at this point we would probably be quite terrified because the reality here is that these curses are horrific. The blessings are great, but the curses are horrific. And, and recognize that it's not sort of a, well, as long as you generally do the right thing and, you know, yeah, you might mess up repeatedly, but if you just continually do the right thing, it's going to be fine. No, it's, it's perfect obedience that God is laying out before them. And if they're to turn aside at all from God, then these curses are going to come upon them. And, and, if, and if they're smart or have any, any wisdom at all, they should be going, I don't know how we're going to do this. I mean, this sounds great, but I don't know how we're going to do this. There's no way we're going to be able to maintain this. And that, that failure, right, it seems inevitable. And that just kind of brings us to the final section of the book, because that's driven home there in chapters 29 through 34, where we have these predictions that Moses makes and, uh, of their future, and then we're going to have a, a number of provisions that are set, set out for them as they come uh, to the end of this, this time with him. So as the book comes to a close, you know, we have these final predictions, exhortations, and provisions that are made. They're on the eve of this turning point uh, in their relationship to God. Right? They've been people largely of a will, you know, that God's called out who've lived in the wilderness and recognized this is a generation of people who've really never even lived in or around like a city or anything remotely resembling a city. So this is a big deal for them. They're about to enter into a nation and, and receive it. And yet Deuteronomy lives us, leaves us with no sort of false ideas that this is, this is going to be successful. In chapters 29 through 30, Moses is going to directly tell the people they're going to fail. The reason is given in, in 29 verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. The people will only love God and obey his commandments if they have a heart to do so. But they don't. And that's the problem, right? So Moses is going to, he's going to exhort them throughout this book on what that looks like. But, but he's also going to make clear, you don't have the heart to love God as you should. So you're going to fail. And these curses are going to come upon you. It, it's a bit sort of tragic and sad, and, and we're meant to feel the weight of that. And if we're them, you maybe you're thinking, okay, oh, oh, okay. Well, that, that seems really anticlimactic. So do we go in, or, or what, do we, what do we do here? But Moses, just as quickly responds to this by, by showing them that, yes, though they're going to fail, the story's not going to end there, right? God is, is going to offer them through Moses a clear promise of hope. Yes, God's law and its curses stand against them, 
and they will inevitably fail to uphold those law, that law. But God himself, as this book is going to show us, uh, he's going to make some astounding promises of grace to them. First, in 32 uh, through 3, we're going to see God promise restoration for those who repent of their covenant breaking. When you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. So for disobedient Israel, the curses don't need to be the end of this story, right? God makes a way for them to repent and to trust in his promises and to be restored. Right? And that's a, that's a message of hope. But, but even more than that, right? that's a temporary solution in some sense to the problem. Yes, if they turn aside and they realize they've done that, they can repent and God will restore them. And we're going to see that happen a number of times throughout the Old Testament. As Israel comes to a position of repentance, God is going to take them from a low place and bring them back into a, a relative position of prosperity. And yet the, the problem really, that's not the resolution. There still remains a resolution that's needed. And we're going to see um, that, that what that resolution is, is, it's really giving the people a new heart, a heart to love God. Back in 1016, the Lord commanded the people to circumcise their hearts and be no longer stubborn. And, and they should, and we should read that and go, how in the world do you do that? How do you, how do you circumcise your own heart? I, I don't know how to do that. You know, the, 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 the idea is clear. There's something stubborn in your heart that needs to be gotten rid of. So get rid of it. And I don't know about you guys, but like you could sit around and, and tell yourself all day long, okay, I need to stop having this bad attitude and stop feeling this way about this thing. It doesn't work that way. Very rarely can we just sort of muster up, or if ever, the strength to just change our, our feelings on a whim. So the idea here is that they need this to be done to them. And so in 36, Moses is going to say to them that even after they go into exile and, and go into disobedience, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So what God has commanded, what he's shown that the people really need, he's promising here to do on his, on his own, right? And again, time and time again, we've seen God is going to take the initiative to do what must be done to build this kingdom and to build a people for himself that are fit for this kingdom. He is going to transform their hearts so that they will genuinely love him, so that they will obey him. And so the book, it ends on this, this note of hope, right? Yes, they're going to fail, but they're to so, go ahead and continue. And they're going to enter into the land. And Moses is even going to exhort them through songs and blessings and exhortations to, to go in and to be faithful, to endeavor to love God and to be faithful, because God is going to see this thing through. That's the picture that we get. And yet, we're also going to see provisions that are made for that, right? So, so Moses is to stay outside the land and he's going to die there, not being able to receive the promise that his whole life has been devoted to. And yet Joshua is going to take over for him and he's going to lead the people into the land to enjoy it. Again, it's a tragic picture, but one that also shows us hope. Because even though Moses' part in the story is over, God's purpose and purposes and promises are going to continue. It's sad, and yet at the same time, it, it highlights the fact that it's God who is ensuring that this thing is, is, is going to come to bear, right? It's not, it's not up to Moses. Moses can die. 
and God's purposes will continue. And so, yes, it, it's sad, but it's also hopeful. And that really, you know, as we close out our time together, I think it's a, it's a fitting way for us to just sort of reflect on this book and ask, how is this book pointing us forward in hope? You know, it's, this is a book that in numerous ways is filled with, with transitions. It's, it's really marking the end of, of Moses' life, the end of this stage of Israel's history. It's marking the end of, of the Pentateuch. But it's, it's looking back while also pointing forward. So throughout this book, we see continual reminders of God's unfailing faithfulness to build this kingdom and to redeem this people. But we also see shadows of what this kingdom should be like and, and what it's going to be like. And we've seen something of this already in those promises that God made through Moses to, uh, of redemption and exile and, and new hearts. By foreshadowing, I think this failure that the, this generation is going to inevitably fall into and this need for a new heart, Deuteronomy is really helping us uh, and pointing us forward by, by pulling back the curtain in a, in a unique way and showing us the core problem at, at the heart of man's relationship to God. Right? God has, has done all that you could imagine. I mean, he has shown, and Moses has recounted all of this in the, in the program. God has shown you tremendous love, and he's done amazing things for you. And of course you should respond to God with love. And yet, that's not what happens. Time and time again, we and they respond to God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love with rejection, with lack of trust, with disobedience, and ultimately with hatred. And Deuteronomy is showing us, and, and the law is showing us, as the New Testament is going to pick up this idea that, that, that sin is a core problem. And that core problem of sin is a lack of love towards God. Right? That's, that's driven home throughout this book. We do not obey God because we do not love God. And we do not love God because sin has set our hearts against Him. That's the, the core problem that's really revealed through this book. And yet at the same time, as this book reveals this and shows us their depravity and shows us how our own depravity and our own unbelief and our own dead hearts towards God and how these rules and stipulations, as Paul said, make sin to be sin for us, they show us that, that we have no hope of being justified by God's law because none of us love God or, or will ever obey His commands. And yet, this book, I think, also shows us that, that through this promise of a new heart, that God is going to provide what we need to be justified before Him apart from the law and to have hearts that can genuinely love and obey Him. And praise God, both of these things have, have come to fulfillment in Christ, right? We've both received justification before God that comes not from obedience to the law, but apart from the law. And we've received new hearts that love God and obey Him. Paul is going to say in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Remember those 70 curses we read. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And what is that promised spirit, right? It's that promise of a new heart. And that's what Paul is showing us here, that that justification that has been provided for us in Christ, apart from our ability to obey God and love God as seen in this law, it it is the basis by which we're not only made right with God, but the basis by which we receive this new heart so that we may love and obey God. And that's what the New Testament is going to do. It's going to bring both of these ideas together and it's going to show you you are justified as a people so that you may be obedient, so that you may love the Lord your God. Paul's going to say in Ephesians 2, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we may walk in them. So we're not just justified to say, okay, yeah, I couldn't obey the law, but I'm cool with God and now everything's good. Yeah, but... But Paul wants us to see, and the New Testament wants us to see, that the purpose of all that was to to make this happen, to make us this kind of people who would love our God, who would enjoy life in His presence, who would enjoy obedience to His commands, who would gladly and willingly love Him and obey Him. And in short, that's what Deuteronomy is pointing us to, right? It is pointing us to this idea, we have all failed to live up to the law, but through Christ we can rest assured that we will be rescued from every evil deed and brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. And as Paul says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Any thoughts, any questions as we close out? It's good stuff. Yeah. Gave him, gave him the land, the farms were already set up, the law, he gave him everything. And yet, that really wasn't what they needed. They needed that new heart. Amen. I think we have a tendency sometimes to think, what I need yeah. is just something that God can give me, whether that's right. you know, it's physical, it's, mm-hmm. it's financial, it's relational. If he'd just give me that, then we'd be good to that's go. Yeah. Well, I think the rest of the Old Testament is really going to drive that really home. It's going to basically say, yeah, God can literally hand you the kingdom and you're still not going to keep it. And, and God can give you everything you need in the most ideal possible circumstances imaginable, and you're still going to not love him and obey him. So your problem, as was said, it's, our problem is not our circumstances. It is our heart. And this book is just really setting up and driving that point home. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks. All right. Okay. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, head upstairs. Lord, we are just humbled in thankfulness towards you that you have given us uh, justification in Christ, that we, we who recognized God, we could not live up to this standard. If we were in their shoes, if we were in their position, we could not obey these laws. Uh, in some way, all of us would would find some area where we would be lacking or we would turn aside. God, we, we were those who were, were set against you, at enmity with you, and yet you have made us your friends by justifying us and giving us a righteousness that comes not from the law but through Christ, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful for new hearts that you have given us to love you, to serve you, and to obey you, and to enjoy your good presence in the kingdom. God, we are grateful that we have that hope 
that we have come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that we will be able to enjoy you and to obey you forever. And we look forward to that day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.